this has been a topic that um, has just kind of niggled away in my spirit for many years. And so I'm pretty excited to be able to uh, share some thoughts and ideas with you this morning. And I really pray God blesses you through this. So come on, let's pray this morning. Mighty God, we love you. We thank you, Jesus, for your presence here by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray this morning, God, that you'll bring clarity in our minds, God, that your word, God, will ring true into our spirits, God, and that, God, that anything I say, Lord, that is not from your spirit will fall to the ground. Lord, we pray for your grace and your truth and your insight to be with us this morning in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Boy, that was a very enthusiastic amen. I'm feeling a little depressed now. Can we just try that a little bit more? And everyone said, yeah, come on, that's awesome. I feel a whole lot more excited now. That's great. You know, I sat in a room several years ago with a group of senior leaders, uh, senior church leaders, and the discussion was around women, women preachers, women elders, <clears throat> women leaders, women in denominational leadership roles. And one senior church leader in particular spoke up and confidently told us that he had no trouble at all with women preaching or even women leading and then he used these, three, uh, these four words. He said, up to a point. Up to a point. I was intrigued. As the conversation unfolded, it became clear that while he said that he held a biblical position on the role and place of woman in church, the reality was that he was fine with women in leadership as long as they weren't in leadership over him. Mm. Interesting. You know, in this world today, the treatment of women, just generically speaking, is quite a phenomenon. It's, it's so pervasive. Uh, in many world religions, women are considered second-rate human beings. Many cultures consider women as property. They have no rights. It's quite astonishing in this day and age, and particularly for us living in New Zealand. Of the 1.2 billion people living in poverty, 70% are women. Only 1% of titled land in the world is owned by women. 67% of all illiterate adults in the world are women. 1,440 women die in childbirth every day, and the vast majority of those are preventable. Globally, about one in three women will be beaten, abused, or raped at some point in their lifetime. An estimated 1.2 million children are trafficked every year, and of those, 80% are girls. It's a frightening thing. And I think that the church is a quantum leap ahead of much of the world, and especially here in Ireland, where I'm, I'm actually delighted to find out when I talk to teenagers that they're not even aware that gender inequality exists in the church. I think that is absolutely wonderful. But do we really understand God's perspective on the issue? You know, in many churches today, in many entire denominations still today, women are not allowed to speak, they're not allowed to teach, they're not allowed to lead, they're not allowed to have authority over a man. So today I want us to really dig in and understand what is God's perspective. You know, back in the 70s and 80s, Paul, Pastor Paul Yongi Cho built the largest church then on the planet. And his strategy was primarily achieved through releasing women into leadership. Now, this would have been so easy for God to make a global statement on. If God did not want women in leadership, just make the church fail. But it, it didn't fail. On the contrary, still to this day, uh, 
Poyong Cho's church uh, in in Seoul, Korea, still sees about 800,000 people attending on a Sunday morning. Absolutely astonishing. Is God really opposed to women in leadership in the church? Or do we maybe have it a little bit wrong? You know, most churches on the planet, women are the major attenders. Therefore, they are the major stakeholders. And for centuries, the debate has gone on in churches over the role of women and this has also been therefore reflected in Christian cultures, and it's all really based on just a couple of scriptures authored by the Apostle Paul. Let me read them to you this morning. First Corinthians chapter 14. You have it in your notes. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. They must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now at the end of the sermon, you're all going to either love me, or at some point my body, my body will be found in a shallow grave somewhere but I'm going to ask you to hang in there with me as we go through this this morning. From what Paul says, it seems pretty clear, doesn't it? It, makes for, uh, it doesn't make for comfortable reading, but it does seem to be pretty straightforward reading, doesn't it? Or does it? You know, not everything in life is as straightforward as it seems. Let me illustrate this by telling you the story of Jean Abbott. Jean Abbott was a woman who was diagnosed at the age of four with cerebral palsy. She was confined to a wheelchair and was bedridden for most of her life. She endured muscle spasms, weakness, near immobility, many painful surgeries. And the doctor who initially diagnosed her as a four-year-old child was considered an expert, and so the initial diagnosis was never questioned, and no further um, uh, checking, it was never checked in terms of what that diagnosis was. Now, when Jean was 37 on one of her many trips to a doctor, she had a new doctor, and this new doctor took a closer look. He ran many tests. He did a complete re-examination. And his conclusion, Jean Abbott did not suffer from cerebral palsy. In fact, what she did suffer from was a condition called doper-responsive dystonia. And here's the interesting thing. Doper-responsive dystonia can be treated with a simple pill. Jean could not believe it. She wouldn't believe it. All of these years in a wheelchair, all of these years bedridden. In fact, at first, she refused to take the prescription to the pharmacy to get the pill. When she finally did, after being wheelchair-bound and bedridden for 33 years, after taking the new pill for just two days, she stood unassisted for the first time in her entire life and went on to make a complete physical recovery. Her life had been utterly transformed. She a Christian woman, loved God with all of her heart, astonishingly held no ill will toward the doctor who initially diagnosed her. She was just so grateful to God for her new life, completely well, completely strong. Her book she's written is titled Misdiagnosed, My 30-Year Struggle with a Disease I Never Had. Here's the lesson. It's dangerous to build a diagnosis from just one or two symptoms. It's just as dangerous 
to build a theology from just one or two scriptures. So when I decided to dig into this and try to get to the bottom of really what does the Bible teach about this, I, I actually sat down and I had a conversation with God. I said, all right, God, where do I begin? God, do I begin in 1 Corinthians 14 or do I begin in 1 Timothy 2? And just immediately I had that sense in my spirit. No, 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 no. If you're going to begin, you begin at the beginning. So to Genesis, I turned, and the first scripture I found is this, Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, this is interesting because the command to be fruitful, to increase, to fill, to subdue, and to to rule was given to both Adam and Eve, both the man and the woman. It was not Adam's mission with Eve tagging along as helper. The mission was a shared mission. In fact, when you dig a little deeper, it appears that before Eve came along, Adam had a mission. It was just to do the gardening. And then when Eve came along, something happened at an entirely different order. The next scripture is Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It is not good, God says, for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In my opinion, this is one of the worst translated Hebrew words in all of scripture. The Hebrew word translated uh, helper is the Hebrew word Eza. It means helper, rescuer, deliverer. Almost every place where this word is used, except for here, it is used to describe God and the work of God in helping, rescuing, and delivering his people, Israel, uh, from, from the challenges, the dramas that they face in life. Now, this is intriguing because there is a word that is used in the Hebrew to describe one person helping another, and it's a very similar word. It's the word Aza. That word should be used here if it is just talking about one person kind of helping another, but it is not. This word is laden with divine action, with divine purpose. The word Aza is used of God, the rescuer of Israel, the deliverer of Israel, and that is the word that is used to describe this woman who comes alongside in this shared mission to assist this man. This is someone who moves with something divine on their role and purpose. You know, the idea is that, that women, specifically wives in this context, fulfill a divinely empowered role alongside their husbands in this shared mission. So does it really make sense then that a couple of thousand years later, God then comes along and through Paul says, hey, no, it's all good now. Thanks, ladies. The blokes can handle it from here on in. I don't think so. Let's go back to the garden. Now, if you know the story, something radical now happens. An incredibly devastating change happens. Something terrible occurs. Sin enters the world. And one of the consequences of that is the curse. And the curse, interestingly enough, not only affects the land and the ground and all those other things, but it also affects the role and, and the, the equality between men and women. Listen to this. Genesis chapter three sixteen. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. 
Gender equality in vision and mission was God's intent. Gender inequality is part of the curse. And for the first time, see, prior to this, rulership occurred, but it never occurred one person ruling over another person. It was people ruling over creation. Now, for the first time, we see one person ruling over another person. So now let's jump forward a bit to the cross, because the cross was when Jesus came to redeem the world from the curse. Galatians 3.13, for Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Just a few verses later in Galatians 3.26, so in Christ you are all children of God through faith for all of you were baptized into Christ, sorry, all of you who, uh, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God removes the curse, takes away male rulership, which was the fruit of the curse, and restores the balance again between men and women in the kingdom. What is God's intent? Clearly again, it's gender equality in this mission and vision. So, so now, of course, what we're all big in the question, but what about what Paul said? What about 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2? So again, we need to look at the message throughout all of scripture. So what I want to do now is I want to take a, a whistle-stop tour through a bit of scripture for what it teaches us on the issues that seem to be raised in these two scriptures. And, and we, have to, we, we, we have to be aware that there are plenty of scriptures that reveal a gender bias, particularly in the Old Testament. But if we stop and think about it, it makes sense. It was both in a strongly patriarchal culture and at this point, it was a world still under the curse. So just because we find gender bias in the Old Testament doesn't mean that gender bias is God's revealed intent for mankind. So what are we looking for? We're looking for things that communicate to us God's perspective on women, particularly in relation to the three things that Paul raises in Corinthians and Timothy. They are speaking in church or speaking in the gathering of God's people. Number two, instructing a bloke, instructing a man. And number three, having authority over a man. What do we see the scriptures reveal about what God does in his community with the place and role of woman in those three activities? Now, I have just had to cut this right down for the sake of time, but let me whiz through a few. Let's start in Exodus 15, 20. We read about Miriam, the prophet. Who did she prophesy to? A woman's group on the back of the tent? No, she prophesied to everybody. Judges 4, verse 4. Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth. Not only was she a prophet bringing the word of the Lord to the nation, but she was the leader of the whole shooting match. Then we have 2 Kings 22. We find another prophet, Hada. Uh, sorry, Hulda, a woman. She's been consulted by five men on behalf of the king so that the king might know what to do in the crisis that he is facing. Clearly, we are seeing women involved, ordained by God, speaking in these sorts of ways. First Chronicles 7, we read about a woman called Shira. Shira was a woman who founded and built three Israelite towns. She did not build the towns all by herself. She did not build the towns with her women's ministry group. All right? So we should be clear on it. But she was a, someone who was heavily involved in the construction of the nation of Israel at that time. Esther, the queen who influenced the king and saved a nation. Let's jump into the New Testament. Acts chapter 2. 
Our sons and daughters will prophesy, and that on my servant, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days, and they will prophesy. Right there at the start of Pentecost. Acts chapter 21, 8 and 9, Philip the Evangelist, he has four unmarried daughters who prophesy. Again, who are these people, who are these girls prophesying to? They're prophesying to the church in Caesarea. Romans 16, Paul commends, go Phoebe, go Phoebe. He commends Phoebe, who we're told is a deacon or a ministry leader in the church. Then in Romans 16, Paul commends Priscilla and Aquila. Note, Priscilla's name is first. That was almost unheard of in literature from the day, speaking of the primacy of her role and her importance in that relationship. He calls them co-workers in Christ. This is Paul. He's championing both of them. He notes they risk their lives for him. He notes that all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them and that there is a church that meets at their house. Romans 16 verse 7, Paul commends two people, Andronicus who is a man and Junia who is a woman. Not only are they both apostles, but Paul says these two, this guy and this girl, outstanding among the apostles. Romans chapter 12, Paul is writing to the whole church in Rome about spiritual gifts given by God, including the gift of leadership. He makes no reference to any differentiation between the uh, moving in these gifts between men and women. So therefore we must assume that these gifts, as we see stated back in the day of Pentecost, are for both men and women. And then he says that those who receive a gift of leadership are expected to operate in it. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, saying that God has given the church apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Again, there is no delineation in Scripture that Paul brings between men and women. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, now the Greek word there is the Greek word adelphos. What it literally means is from the womb. Often it's translated as brothers. It could also be translated simply as family. Family, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. He has already stated earlier in the letter that women will be prophesying. First Corinthians 11, Paul now talks about how a woman, sorry, how a woman should pray or prophesy in church. This, this, this scripture is not a debate about whether she can or not. It's we're going to have women prophesying in church, and so, but this is how culturally that is expected to operate. I mean, Paul's just going on and on and on about the great people that are operating in the congregation of the saints, and again and again and again, he references women. Women prophesying, women speaking, women leading. And then out of the blue, we get 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul says, women should not speak in church and must be silent. And then later, 1 Timothy chapter 2 does not allow a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. Okay, so we need to push pause about now and go, what? Like, what the heck is going on? Has Paul missed his morning coffee? Has he been stoned one too many times? I mean, like, this is like me sitting up here and going, I love cake. I love cake. I love all cake. I particularly enjoy, actually, I enjoy all sorts of cake. Cake, I am all for cake. I love cake. And then going, cake? Hate this stuff. Never touch it. You'd go, <laughs> yeah, something's wrong with Mike today. We have to look at what Paul is saying and go, okay, we're clearly missing something here. We're clearly missing something because we know that Paul is not only highly intelligent, but we also know because this is the word of God that he is consistent. And Paul is 
He's godly. He's anointed. He wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament. He is a man who's speaking the words of God. We can trust that what he's saying is right and true and consistent. And if that is the case, there is only one possibility, ladies and gentlemen, in terms of how we interpret these verses. And that is, is that Paul, in Corinthians and Timothy, Paul is speaking to some women because he's still speaking to somebody. Paul is speaking to some women, but he cannot be addressing women who were in leadership. How do we know this? Quite simply because of all the women that Paul has been acknowledging and commending who have been in influential positions of leadership in the early church. He has recognized, not just recognized, but commended women prophets, women teaching, women deacons, women apostles. We're talking about people who church plant and, and, and are involved in leadership, have, the, have miracles operating through their lives and are speaking into the lives of established churches. Therefore, Paul must be addressing those women in the congregations that he's writing to who were not leaders and who, for some reason, were out of order. Is it possible because we miss the contextual realities of what's going on in the Corinthian church and what's going on in the churches that Timothy is involved in that we unfortunately, tragically even, completely misinterpret those two scriptures and end up creating something that Paul never intended to be created in the church? You know, I suspect that Paul could never have imagined the drama and the damage that those words that he wrote would inflict on half the church for nearly 2,000 years. I bet that if he could have known, he would have written those words more carefully. I bet if he could have understood how we would interpret those particular scriptures and how we would build entire theology and how we treat 50% of our population based on those two scriptures, I bet he would have taken more care to more clearly explain what was already very evident to him and almost certainly very evident to his listeners but which are things that we, as culture has shifted and changed, we have missed over the years. I would imagine that if that was the case, Paul would have written something like this, and let me, uh, let me hypothetically speaking, let me paraphrase the scripture based on a, a more contextual understanding of what's going on and based on the full weight of scripture. I imagine Paul would have written something like this in 1 Corinthians, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. And this disorder is not okay. Now, I'm obviously not talking to the women leaders, apostles, prophets, and deacons that I've previously written to you about, but to the women in the congregation. They need to understand that they should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but they must be in submission, as the law says, instead of being rebellious and calling out questions in the middle of a service. If they want to inquire about something, instead of calling out and disrupting the meetings, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church like that. Perhaps we could paraphrase 1 Timothy similarly. A woman who professes to be a follower of Jesus, who is in the congregation, but is obviously not one of the acknowledged leaders, but who's a learner, recognizing what we all know, which is that first century women received no education. They should learn, therefore, in quietness and full submission. She's not allowed to teach or have authority over a man because we realize that men are more highly educated 
So she must be quiet until she has gained the knowledge that is required to step into a leadership role. You see, where the weight of Scripture, now this is incredibly important, where the weight of Scripture is consistent apart from one or two verses, we must question the one or two verses, not question the weight of Scripture. You know, in a court of law, stand, the standard of evidence that is required to convict a guilty party is what's called evidence beyond reasonable doubt. Why reasonable doubt? Because there's always going to be some doubt. In life, there's always doubt. We can never fully know all of the situations and circumstances. But when the weight of evidence is enough, so that beyond our reasonable doubt and lack of certainty, we go, wow, that seems to be absolutely crystal clear. That is the standard of law for bringing a conviction of somebody. I'm telling you today, it is beyond reasonable doubt that women have a shared ministry in the kingdom of God and it is time that they took their place. Is Paul opposing women in leadership? Absolutely not. Is Paul opposing disorder and disruption in the congregations? Absolutely. Is Paul speaking within a particular cultural context? Without a doubt. So what does the Bible tell us then about the place of women in this thing that Jesus called his church? Can I suggest that it is divinely ordered, but it is culturally constrained? You see, culture is the influence of earth. Purpose is the influence of heaven. And we are all caught in a tension somewhere between the two. But can I suggest four things that would be incredibly helpful for us all to understand about women when it comes to God's church? God's church. Number one, they have an equal gifting. God is an equal opportunity gifter. Unfortunately, mankind is not. But for you ladies in the church, let me say this to you. Trust the Lord to get you where he needs to get you. If he gifted you, he intends for you to be able to operate in that gifting. He would not have given it to you if he didn't have a plan for how you can use it. So step up. Second thing we need to understand is that women have a shared mission. This is not about the ladies taking over. Someone once said that if women ran the world, there would be no actual wars, but there would just be incredibly intense, angry international negotiations roughly every month. You know, the mission is always meant to be shared. Women running the world is just as problematic as men running the world, but just in different ways. We were designed to do this together. Thirdly, we must understand about women that women have a divine function. A divine function. <coughs> in a way that, that if, if I can be completely honest, in a way that I don't think most of us men really get, really understand, or really appreciate. Ladies, your ability to influence is just actually of a different order, I believe. And I believe you need to find out, out of your relationship with God, how God wants you to move into that place of being a rescuer, a helper, a deliverer of God's people. And then fourthly, we must understand that women have a different methodology. You know, on a chessboard, have you ever stopped to, to notice about how the queen moves and impacts the game completely differently 
from how the king does. In fact, the queen is the most powerful chess piece on the board. But you can't play without a king. Women are generally more relational, more conversational, more in the moment than their male counterparts. Men are more, more focused, more, have greater ability to compartmentalize their world. Both of the, all of these things are incredible strengths. All have flip side weaknesses attached, but God intended us to do these things together because that's the way that the kingdom is manifest in a way that wins. You know, I think the effect of the curse and its impact on women around the world has been astonishingly pervasive. It's been, I think it has incredibly disenfranchised both the world and the church. It has stolen half of God's army at various times from the battle lines. Whole churches and denominations simply shut out women from utilizing their God-given gifts in the service of the saints and reaching the world. The effect of the curse has resulted in the suffering and death of countless billions of women over the course of history as they have been persecuted and as they have been counted nothing more than property and how that has played out in cultural contexts. Not only that, it has crippled societies, it has crippled economies, and it has crippled families, and I believe it is absolutely from the devil. And the devil has worked overtime, overtime, to keep it that way, even though what Jesus did on the cross made the way for that cross to be nullified and for the balance to be restored. Let me finish with this as the team come. In Luke chapter 13, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, she could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work. Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Don't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or your donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. Around the world, Satan has kept women bound for far too long. Should not every woman, should not every daughter of God be set free from the misunderstandings about role and gifting and mission that have held them back from the purposes of God. So this is my charge to you, church. May we enter into our shared mission together in a new way, in a new season. May we believe that God's intent should be our best strategy. May each one of us use the giftings God has given us and expects us to work on. And may we make room for each other, appreciate our differences, leverage our strengths, support each other in our weaknesses, and demonstrate God's kingdom on earth to a world that is messed up. Ladies, I believe it's time to serve God and build the church and make disciples and work in your giftings in this mission that we cannot do without you. And I'm challenging you to think again, believe again, study again, because I believe that the church that God is leading us into globally 
is a church that will change the world, but only as we all take our places together. Amen. I want to ask this really quickly this morning. I know we're out of time, but I'm going to ask every lady in the church to stand up. So I'd like to pray for you this morning.